What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. When we look at these regrets, they basically tell us what people say makes life worth living, that it's kind of a photographic negative of the good life. Um, that what do we want out of life? We want some stability. We want a chance to do something and be bold and live. We want to do the right thing and we want love essentially. But I think there's a massive business lesson here too. And one of the massive business lessons is that I think those are the makings of a strong corporate culture. You know, if we want this out of life, these four things, why would we not want them out of the part of our life at which we're spending half of our waking hours? You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode The Power of Regret. My guest today has written seven books over the past 20 years. He studied human motivation, which yielded his bestseller, Drive, the surprising truth about what motivates us. He's written about salesmanship, about creativity, and about the science of perfect timing. His business books appeal to a scientific mind, and he tells them through very human stories. He's Daniel Pink, and I wanted to speak to him today because his new book is really not your typical business book. It's about something you don't hear much about at work, but that Dan says really should have a place there, both conceptually and directly coming out of the mouths of bosses everywhere. The book's called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forwards. Before he started researching the dark human emotion regret, he himself started feeling it as triggered by a life milestone. You know, there's this old line in science that, or especially social science, that all research is me-search. And I think that this is a sort of a case of that, in that I realized that I had regrets. Um, and one of the catalysts for it was going to my elder daughter's graduation, college graduation. And I just kind of having an out-of-body experience because I couldn't believe this kid was graduated from college. I felt like I'd graduated from college like three years ago. And I started thinking about my regrets about college. Uh, like, my God, what did I do in college? Oh my God, I should have worked harder. Oh man, if only I'd been nicer guy, you know? And I found when I came back talking about that, that it mentioned to a few people sheepishly that they actually kind of leaned in rather than recoil. And, you know, as a writer, that's very interesting. And so I started looking at some of the research and actually forgive this long-winded tale though, but I, I was actually working on another book altogether. And I put it aside for a month to look at some of the research on regret and then had to send my editor about four weeks after that an email saying, hey, you know this book you think I'm working on? I'm not, because um, I got something better. I hear they love that. <laughs> they love that when you do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Editors, editors love irresponsible writers. That's one of the things that, you know, after, after 20 plus years as a writer, I just know that editors love when writers send them bad news or when writers make promises they don't keep. They love that. And for all you young writers out there, that's the secret to success. But fortunately, <laughs> I, I accompanied that note with a, 
25 page proposal for a new book that was better. So it all worked out in the end. Great. And and you gave it to the same editor? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> well, well, so this, you actually then followed up that idea with doing a bunch of original research um, as well. So how did, how did, how did that go? How did that help frame your thinking and your writing? It helped quite a bit. And I think that one of the things that's interesting, I mean, again, if I, if I go back, I, let me let me sort of pair those two interesting first questions, because I think they're, they're sort of related. So for instance, I don't think I would have written this book in my early 30s. I don't think I had enough mileage on me to really process regrets well or really understand what they were. In my 50s, it sort of felt inevitable because I'm at a stage in my life where I can both look backward and look forward. Okay, so so I, I, that's part of it. But also, as a writer for you know doing these books, for, this is a seventh book in 20 years. If I look back, there's research that I can do today that was impossible 20 years ago. It's incredible. I mean, I can do like a, a piece of sophisticated survey research. Um, you know, working with a working with a data analytics company, we put together a sample of 4,489 Americans, and we went out and got these panels representative of the U.S. population, asked them a bunch of questions about regret. So as a non-academic, I was able to do much more than academics were able to do 10 years ago. It's just incredible. What's more? So I did a quantitative piece of research, and I also did a qualitative piece of research, which actually in many ways proved more revealing. And the qualitative piece of research was that I set up a website called the World Regret Survey, where I simply invited people to submit their regrets. And to my amazement, we got like, I mean, we're, we're even higher now, but we got 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. And that proved really interesting, too. And so together, my quantitative research, the qualitative research, and then looking at this, some very, very brilliant, interesting stuff that traditional social scientists have done for the last 50 years, it enabled me, I think, to get a kind of a three-dimensional view of what regret is and why it matters. I'm sure there's a book, a literal book full of your findings, but um, can you give me the, a few of the top line ones? Oh, okay. So let's just talk about regret as a phenomenon. So this philosophy of no regrets, where it's, oh, I don't have any regrets. This is very American positive philosophy. I don't have any regrets. Uh, I don't even think about regrets. I never look backward. That is a colossally bad idea. It is a colossally ineffective blueprint for living. What the research tells us, this is the research for 60, 70 years of science, is that everybody has regrets. Every single person has regrets. The only people without regrets are little tiny kids, basically anybody younger than seven, whose brains haven't quite developed the cognitive capacity to understand regret. People with lesions in the orbital frontal cortex part of their brain, some people with Huntington's disease and Parkinson's disease, and sociopaths. So, the inability to experience regret is the, often the sign of a grave problem. And so everybody has regrets that make us human, but regrets also make us better. That regrets are our most common negative emotion, but they're also our most transformative. That if we deal with them properly, they can help us in a whole array of, of areas, particularly in business. I mean, they can help us make better decisions. They can help us become better negotiators, better problem solvers, better strategists, if we treat them right. I guess the obvious next question is, how do you treat them right? How can you kind of harness that power of the regret? That is an obvious question, but it's largely been an unanswered question. And, and I think that's the big problem. That is, you know, in America especially, we haven't done a good enough job of dealing with negative emotions. We think that we should always be positive all the time. And it's important to be positive, and positive emotions should 
totally outweigh your negative emotions. But we have negative emotions for a reason. <laughs> they help us survive. And our most common negative emotion is regret. And so what we have to learn to do is deal with it. So we can, so we can take two approaches, all right, with negative emotions like regret. We can say, I ignore it. Doesn't matter. No regrets. Forget about it. That's a bad idea. That leads to delusion. The problem sometimes is that when people aren't equipped to deal with it, they those negative emotions hijack them. And so they spin into rumination and wallowing. That's really bad too. What we want to do is actually think about our regrets, that negative feelings are for thinking. They are signals. And you know, one of the things is like there's this false notion that no regrets equals courage, that having no regrets is a sign of courage. Nonsense. What courage is, is staring down your regrets and doing something about them. And, and there's a systematic way to do that. Yeah. So is it all about self-growth and just using that regret to make yourself um, react differently in the future? And if not, do tell me. But also, did you get any good examples from the business community or that related to business while you were doing the research that you could share or that you learned from? So much stuff. I mean, so let me take on that one right there, because in the qualitative part of the research, the World Regret Survey, where I collected 16,000 regrets from people around the world, what I found is that over and over again, people kept expressing the same four regrets and irrespective of the domain of life. So, for instance, you would have people who regretted um, not traveling enough. That's a personal regret. You had people because they were scared to travel. You have people who I got all kinds of regrets from people who there was someone, a man or a woman who they liked when they were younger and they wanted to ask them out on a date and they were too chicken to do it. And now they, and they regret not taking that chance. Uh, you got people, a lot of people, huge numbers of people regret not starting a business. And so even though those seem like they're in different domains, then they are, it's the same regret. It's a regret about boldness. Uh, it's a regret that says, if only I'd taken the chance. And so we have regrets about if only I'd done the work, those are regrets where you make small decisions that compromise the stability of your life, not saving money, not taking care of your health. We have boldness regrets, which are if only I'd taken the chance. We have moral regrets, which are if only I'd done the right thing. And these are people regretting bullying kids in school, marital infidelity, other kinds of cheating, that sort of stuff. And then there are connection regrets, which are if only I'd reached out. And connection regrets are about relationships of all kinds, not just romantic relationships. I have an enormous number of regrets about friendships that came that drifted apart and nobody wanted to reach out. And so when we look at these regrets, they basically tell us what people say makes worth life, life worth living, that it's kind of a photographic negative of the good life, um, that what do we want out of life? We want some stability. We want a chance to do something and be bold and live. We want to do the right thing and we want love, essentially. But I think there's a massive business lesson here too. And one of the massive business lessons is that I think those are the makings of a strong corporate culture. You know, if we want this out of life, these four things, why would we not want them out of the part of our life at which we're spending half of our waking hours? So if you think about foundation regrets and stability, people want jobs and want to work for organizations that give them at least some kind of stability. So it's not precarious. It's not unpredictable. I have in the boldness category, people say, literally saying things like, I wish I was able to be, I wish I were more entrepreneurial at, at work. I wish I'd taken more career risks. You want to work for organizations that allow you to do that. I have hundreds of regrets about people regretting not speaking up 
Um, the, the, I mean, there are a couple of, there's a few in the book of, of people not speaking up because they felt that their organization, their context didn't allow them to do it. Moral regrets. People want to work for companies and organizations that do the right thing. And then also people want a sense of belonging at work, of affinity to their colleagues. So I think that there are, you know, huge lessons that, that regret in a weird way. It gives you a pathway to what makes a strong culture. It, it's an unexpected pathway there. It's not one that I expected to find, but I think it's it's pretty clear. Yeah, that is so fascinating. I love that you refer to it as a photographic negative of the good life. And I think, yeah, in business and beyond, we can we can learn from that. Um, it, it's so interesting. Does, was there much of a tie-in between this research and, and what you've written in the past about human motivation? I mean, was that pretty apparent as well? I don't know. That's an interesting question. I, you know, it wasn't intentional. You know, writing a book is really, really hard. I've been doing it for a while. It doesn't get any easier. It's really hard. So you have to pick something that you're really interested in and really curious about and willing to endure for years. And so that becomes a much bigger question about, oh, does this connect to something I previously wrote? Um, I do think that if you look at books, I mean, I wrote a book called Drive about the science of motivation. Uh, if, you, if you look at that book uh, and, and even some of my other books, I do think that even though those books were a little bit more directly about business, but I, I, invariably, no matter, it seems no matter what I write about, it comes back when you get to the unit of one, when you get to the individual, whether she is an individual, you know, in her context at home or individual context at work or individual in any kind of context, that I feel like <laughs> everything leads me back to the search for meaning, <laughs> that people are looking for a sense of meaning. What does it mean? What's the purpose? And to some extent, love, even though they sound like so squishy for in business terms that it ends up leading me back to these things over and over and over again. One quick example of that, 20 years ago, I wrote a book called Free Agent Nation about the rise of people working for themselves. And to write that, because I'm a masochist who will read 16,000 regrets in 2022, back then I traveled around the country and interviewed face to face hundreds of these people who went out on their own. And what I expected at the outset was a story about information age capitalism and the disaggregation of firms and blah, 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 blah. But when I actually talked to people, it was about, hey, I want to lead a good life. I want a life that's purposeful. And even with motivation, what the science of motivation tells us that we've massively underestimated people's drive to do things that are interesting and to do things that are meaningful to them and to do things for the sake of doing them. Yeah, and to like use their own specific skill set too, right? And there were also instances of people wanting to spend more time with their kids or, you know. It's about meaning. It's like, I think that at some level, we all know we're not here forever. So let's not waste it. And what does it mean not to waste it? And over and over again, it means... I think you're absolutely right, Christine, that it's a, partly about using whatever talents I've been endowed with. I think that's a big part of it, really. Um, and I think that using them in the service of something, you know, not necessarily solving the climate crisis, but doing something and also having some kind of connection, affiliation and love. Uh, and it all seems to circle back to that. And I think for years, we've tried to keep those things out of the workplace. They weren't serious. And I think that it's impossible to do that because we're human beings and 
we can't simply relegate half of our waking hours to say, no, 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 no. This part of your life, we don't talk about that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter. You just have to put your nose to the grindstone and deal. Whereas in other parts of our life, I think we are searching for why are we here? What's my purpose? How do I best, to your point, how do I best use my talents? How do I find people whom I love and who love me? When we're talking about motivation at work, how can a company, how can a manager kind of incorporate these ideas and really let a person bring their whole self to work, let a person bring their motivations and also kind of harness those motivations and feed them? Well, I mean, there are all kinds of things you can do with regard to regret at, let's think on the, the issue of regret and how we process our regrets. One of the most important things in dealing with our own regrets is disclosure. It's not an accident that 16,000 strangers divulged their greatest regrets to me. Not, not because I'm a great guy, it's because the act of divulging was itself useful. And so when we disclose our regret- Even if they're just typing it into a web form or whatever. Yes, but, but let's come back to that. Yeah. That's actually really important. Yeah. That's actually a really important insight. So disclosing our regrets is a form of unburdening. What's more is that negative emotions are often blobby and amorphous and abstract. And when we convert them into words, that makes them more concrete and less fearsome. And so it begins the sense-making process. The other thing we know about disclosure, one last thing is that, and this is an important lesson for leaders, is that when we disclose negative information about ourselves, not all negative information, but it's kind of our vulnerabilities, our failures, our setbacks. We fear that people will like us less. And the evidence for 30 years is that people like us more. It's a great lesson. So what is so the point here is that I think there's something healthy about leaders talking about their regrets with their team and then talking about what they learn from that regret, what lesson they derive from that regret and how they're gonna apply it going forward. I think that that would catalyze a very rich, useful conversation because regrets, the key thing about regrets is that they hurt, but they instruct and clarify. But you can't have just one. You can't have the instruction and clarifying without a little bit of the hurt. And so you need to, how do you turn that hurt into learning? And I think that that is one of the tasks that, that leaders can do. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So I was actually going to ask you about Free Agent Nation because you— Oh, my gosh. You, All right. I know. I know. We were just talking about it. Um, you know, you you wrote that piece, actually, for Fast Company. Um, and it was, like, back in 1997, um, Fast Company being our sister publication. Yeah. And— you had quit your job and then wrote this article. Um, and you kind of charted all of the population of America that were free agents, right? That were yeah. people who had struck out on their own. A lot of them had formerly had corporate jobs. Mm -hmm. It seemed like this trend that was just ripe to upswing. You know, you estimated that some there were some 25 million free agents working in the U.S. at the time. Um, but that number hasn't grown like that dramatically. I saw that in 2020, it was reported that 14% of the workforce reported being self-employed. Of course, the pandemic certainly seems to have heightened that. Um, you know, there's the big quit going on, as it's being called. Um, is it time to sort of shift back to that idea and focus on on it a little bit more? Is it time to rekindle that discussion? Maybe. One of the things I wrote about in the book, Free Agent Nation, was how, even now, how our methodology for counting people at work is still archaic. We do an okay job in certain realms, but in terms of the form of employment, it's difficult. So I'll give you an example from my own life. I am a free agent. I've been working, I've never had an office 
after I quit my job outside of my house, I pay for my own health insurance, et cetera, et cetera. I'm actually not counted because I'm incorporated uh, and I get a paycheck. So I'm actually listed as a W-2 employee. My wife, who's also an employee of this, of Daniel Pink Incorporated, all right, I thought of the name myself. Uh, <laughs> so creative. They, I know, it's incredible. We had a we, 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 we paid a lot of money for a naming consultant to sort of figure out how to capture the brand the best. <laughs> My wife is also a W-2 worker, but we're both self-employed, so we don't count in that. Uh, it doesn't count things like um, um, what, what labor economists used to call polyemployment, which we now call side hustles. So it's hard to get a, a firm number around. Um, the truth is that most people are not free agents. Most people have regular sal- wage and salary jobs. But huge portions of us do. And I think the other thing that's that's been interesting that's happened since I, I wrote about that all those years ago, one of them is, is that I made the case that technology was a great enabler for this way of working. And that was before smartphones. That was before widespread Wi-Fi. That was before social media. That was before Zoom. So the accelerants have even deepened. The other thing that's super interesting, though, to me on this is that at the time I wrote that, Corporate America and free agent nation were very distinct, very distinct places. Now I think they resemble each other. So if people aren't working for the same company for for that long, if they are being if, if a lot of the risk is being shifted on them, it used to be that companies bore a lot of the risk uh, for things like pensions. Now we used to have these pensions, you know, traditional pensions, defined benefit pensions, where you left the company and you just got paid a check. Now, nobody has that almost. It's almost all defined contribution, 401ks. More of the onus is on us. More of the onus is on us for education and training. More of the onus is on us for paying for health care. And so more of the risk has shifted to individuals. So if you've got a bunch of people who are working from home and paying the bulk of their health insurance and having to save their own retirement and don't have long-term job security, the fact that they're working for the Acme Widget Company and getting a W-2 you know, is sometimes less relevant than the fact that many of us at some level have this more free agenty style, for better or worse. We still haven't had the, the social infrastructure to support that for things like we've gotten better on healthcare, but we still don't have that fully. But I think that when you see things like in this country, finally talking about universal pre-K, more childcare, uh, universal basic income, I think that is in some ways a reflection of this move toward more of the risk being shifted to individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's almost as if the corporations have just continued to win and the individuals just continue to sort of lose in the power struggle there and people still. Well, part of it, you know, part of it is, I mean, what you see, um, you see some of that. I mean, essentially what we had is we had, I mean, I don't want to empty the audience here on this, but the what you had is you had for a long time in America, not even for a long time, for a, one brief shining moment in America, you had companies, large companies that were operating in some ways sort of in a quasi-governmental role. They said, you know what? We'll take care of your retirement. We'll take care of your health insurance. We'll take care of your education and training. We'll give you lifetime job security. And so it's almost this like socialism through companies. And then companies facing incredible competition overseas said, we can't sustain that anymore. And so they start saying, you got to pay for your own health insurance. You got to pay for your own retirement. You don't have lifetime job security. And they throw that back on individuals. Some people are equipped to deal with that very well, but other people are not. And this is why we have a reason why we have widening inequality, why we have greater precariousness in many parts of our labor market. 
When we come back, I'll talk with Daniel about his career and why he thinks the phrase thought leadership is ridiculous. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I want to ask you back about your own career. So after you wrote that first book, was it an instant decision to follow that up with more books and to sort of make your life as an author from that point on to have Daniel Pink Inc.? And <laughs> I, I just kind of want to, I just kind of want to like, was thought leadership a thing then? Did you think that that, I mean, you probably didn't think that was going to be a path, right? I don't think thought leadership is a thing now. I mean, people think it is. People do. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Let me just, I, would never use the phrase thought leader, except to say, I don't like the phrase thought leader. I think that's a ridiculous term. So I left my job 20 plus years ago to work on my own because I discovered in my early 30s that I might want to be a writer when I grew up. I was doing different things, but was always doing writing on the side, including for the very first issue of Fast Company. If you go back into your archives, the very first issue of Fast Company uh, that had the credo of Fast Company on the cover. I have a piece in there. I, I was actually working at another job. It was a side hustle. And I don't even think I got paid because I was working at a government job and I couldn't get paid. So I was always writing on the side. And finally, I decided to to do that on my own. But the way that I took that risk is that when I left my job, my wife sure as hell did not leave her job. She sure as heck did not leave, get rid of her health insurance. You've made it, we made a calculated risk as a family to try to do something different, recognizing that we'll see how it goes and try to make it work. And it eventually began, we didn't get immediate traction, but it eventually began to work. And I realized that I liked writing books. It was something that, it was a form that felt good to me. And if I hustled enough, um, we could more or less pay the mortgage and pay for diapers. But I also recognize that, as I said earlier, writing a book is very difficult. It's a giant pain. You live with it forever. I mean, you live with it for the, the years that you spend writing it. So you have to be really into it. And you live with it. I mean, you're asking me questions. I'm totally, I'm totally psyched to talk about it. You're asking me questions <laughs> about a book that came out 20 years ago. I love talking about Free Asian Nation, even today. But there are not many topics that I want to talk about 20 years later. And there are many topics that I want to spend two or three years of intense research on. And so to me, the, the question is, my, my calculus has been, if there's something that I find that I'm curious enough about that I want to go deep on, I'm probably not that special. And there are other people who would be equally interested in this. And then if we hustle enough, we can make it commercially viable and essentially do, James Carst long ago wrote a book called Finite Games and Infinite Games. Finite Games, the goal is to win. Infinite Games, the goal is to keep playing. And so I look at it, I look at book writing as like an infinite game. There's no winning. It's just that, you know, let's try to do well enough so that I don't have to go back and get a real job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, not until I became an author myself did I realize that every time you're holding a book in your hands, you're holding three to four years of another human's uh, life I, <laughs> right there. You know what? I mean, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great way to look at it. And and I and this is this is why I try to help other authors if I'm if I'm able to. 
and why I would never trash anybody else's book. Because even if it stinks, and plenty of books stink, many books stink, I would never like say, okay, you're you're an idiot. Three years of your life is completely wasted. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. I mean, I might think that it's no good, and I and I certainly wouldn't advocate for it. But some people out there get a kind of a thrill by saying, you know, by taking down other people, other writers. And I think that's just absurd. So do you have a personal line of work related regret? Um, did anything come up while you were doing your research in terms of your own career and your your own work life? Yeah. One of my big career regrets is I never really had a mentor and never. And I sort of that sort of dawned on me fairly late in the game. And I realized that was I regret that because I could have learned so much and I could have if I had a decent mentor, I could have actually been a better mentor myself because I would have learned, you know, how to do that right. And it, and it wasn't the case that I was like some kind of marginalized person who couldn't find it. I was just too dumb to realize what it was and why it was important. And even if someone had sort of approached me in a mentor-like role, I would have said, what are you talking about? I know what I'm doing. Um, and so looking backward, I look at that and say, e, that's kind of a mistake. Um, I regret that. I regret not having that relationship. I regret not having that guidance. I think that that could have steered me around uh, several career pitfalls that I that that occurred. And so, you know, what I do now is, you know, I try to help people out, not necessarily actively mentoring, but actually encouraging people to, you know, reach out to people who are senior to them and ask for advice. And I think, and I wish I had done, I wish I had done way more of that. I really regret it. Yeah, that's smart. Is there anything that you think back on um, that you have actively changed your mind about over the years? I used to be a, a bigger believer in meritocracy, um, in the idea that that people succeeded based on their own pluck and initiative and talent and drive. And I was mistaken. That's part of it. There's no question about it. But the circumstances of one's birth are profoundly important. And I don't think I realized that until, you know, I was probably in my 30s when I realized that it's not like I'm some kind of genius. Like both of my parents went to college. I grew up in a middle class family in Columbus, Ohio. I got a chance to go to college. That is a huge head start on most people. And if I hadn't done something marginally useful with my life, it would be an abject embarrassment given all the advantages that I have. And so, you know, I, I think that we have really, in America, we've really downplayed um, how much the circumstances of one's birth affect outcomes and at some level how unjust that can be. I think that the, the tipping point for that for me, Christine, was when I had kids and I realized that my kids were going to, you know, who also have two college educated parents who are growing up in, you know, a nice neighborhood in Washington, D.C., who have an opportunity to go to grade schools. Um, that they have huge advantages over kids who were born on the same day, just a few miles away. Right. Absolutely. And as a parent, it's so mind blowing that, you know, you're like wired to give the kids the best that, that you can do, right? Yeah. This is not an argument for, for, for like saying, okay, guys, you know what? We're going to send you to a terrible school just to, <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's the remedy. I think the remedy is for people who have some advantages to recognize that it, it isn't a fair playing field and to do things to to even that out. 
I think businesses are increasingly reckoning with that themselves. And um, I mean, certainly they are are doing small things in general, as I've seen as a, as a reporter and as a worker myself. But, but I think there can be more done there, too. There's no question about it. And the other thing is that, I mean, this is the old line, and I think it's absolutely true, is that talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And, you know, Raj Chetty has, or was it Raj Chetty? So, somebody did a paper um, very poignant uh, with a great title about, about lost Einsteins and how the fact that capability and talent is widespread throughout the population, but the opportunity to draw on that talent is not as widespread. And as a consequence, we, all of us as a society, are missing out on genius, invention, beauty from people who didn't have who don't have those opportunities. And that's a social tragedy. And and the more we can give people more opportunity to draw on their talents, the better off we're going to be. So anyway, just a long-winded way of answering the question about how um, is that I'm a less ferocious believer that there is a meritocracy than I was 25 years ago. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining me today. What a pleasure talking to you. Dan Pink. What stuck with me is not just the fascinating research he's done, but also that everything in his body of work, on the surface, a bunch of business books, really accomplishes. Everyone, as he notes, comes back to not just how we work or how to do it better, but rather what really motivates us in life. And that's way beyond work. It's about everything we do and choose, circling back to wanting connection affiliation, and love, to being able to contribute something to the big picture. We often channel that by trying to use our most unique skills or to make a group stronger. To learn from our mistakes, we need to feel, and that's where regret comes in. Turns out emotion does have a real place in the workplace, and that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who would love our show, please do send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have any ideas for founders you'd love to hear from, feel free to drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. You can also let me know directly on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, Joshua Christensen, regrets not actually being present for my interview with Dan. So this week I had help from our excellent production assistant, Blake Odom. Our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. What I Know.